All right, we are in our last message on uh, Lose the Baggage, and uh, this morning's kind of a critical one. I want to apologize up front. We're not going to get everything in, and I also want to apologize. Many of the things I wanted to unpack, I'm not going to get to, all right? So, but having said that, uh, it has kicked up a lot of conversation, and a lot of you have talked, you've emailed me, and I appreciate all the feedback I've received. So let's just do a, a brief review so we can kind of summarize where we've been and then we'll walk into this morning. So we started with this question, right? Here was the question. What does spiritual, emotional, mental health look like, right? When you think of that, when you think of healthy, what does that look like, right? It's a great question. And then the second question we followed with is have you achieved it? Now, obviously, none of us have hit perfect, right? None of us have uh, totally hit that that won't happen till heaven, but we've been on a journey. You've, if you've known the Lord for any length of time, you've been on a journey with him about health and about mental health and being in right relationship and learning to love other people. And uh, we use this diagram from uh, Pastor Jan in his book, The Safe King, to talk about when the Holy Spirit comes in, he begins to move, he begins to teach, he begins to agitate, he begins to push out in different areas. In some areas, he gains, he gains great ground really quickly, right? Just boom, wow, I'm really walking, this is awesome. And then other ones, not so much, <laughs> right? And what's funny is what's easy for you is hard for me, and what's hard for me is easy for you, right? I mean, each of us have different battles like this in terms of what, what comes easy in terms of cooperation with the Lord and what are the hard areas that it comes with the Lord. So in this process, we've been talking about how bitterness really gums this whole process up. And last week, we used the illustration of the sycamine tree as an illustration of how bitterness can harden our hearts up. And you can go on online and unpack that. If you missed that one, uh, it's really good. But we noted how that the fig of the sycamine tree uh, is bitter because it's pollinated by the sting or the venom of a wasp. Now, they're literally poison is injected in that fig. So when you eat it, it's bitter. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay, that's how it's pollinated. Uh, I came across another illustration this week as well. Uh, last week after the services, so I was talking to Jeff and Carrie Jo Wagner uh, in the back, and she was blessing me for meddling in her life about her bitterness, <laughs> with joy, I might add. And, uh, and she said, you know, there's another plant that's a very good illustration of how bitterness works. And she says, Steve, have you ever heard of a dock plant? And I never had. I, that was a brand new uh, term to me. And, and so she, her and Jeff both gave me a quick primer because their yard seems to be infested with them, right? And, and so they've tried to dig these up and get rid of them. And they were telling me how difficult it was. So here's a picture of a dock plant. This is what they look like. Some of you may have seen those before. Um, but dock plants are fascinating uh, in a very troubling kind of way. And here are four quick primers on dock plants. All right. So number one, dock plants are really hard to eliminate or eradicate because they have really deep root systems. Sounds a lot like the sycamine tree, doesn't it? Same kind of idea. They uh, Sometimes that weed there can drop a root three feet deep into the ground. If you ever tried to dig three feet down, that's a long way. So they're really hard to get rid of. And um, what we mentioned is that, remember that scripture tells us, 
to let no root of bitterness because bitterness tends to go deep into our hearts as well. So that's one. Number two, dock plants shoot off seeds as you try to clip them. So at the, this one doesn't show it really well. You can kind of see it there, the spriggy things. But there's, there's pods of seeds on that. So like if you go and take a scissor and go, you know, ha-ha, got you. As you do that jolt, the seeds go bang like this, right? And they scatter all over the place. So the only way you can really do it is if like you take a bag, put a plastic bag over it, and then cut it and catch the bag, uh, the seeds in the bag. So it, by the very act of trying to get rid of the plant, you spread it. Which, which is kind of frustrating. Uh, reminds me of a story of a pastor, how bitterness works. There was a woman in a town that uh, became angry with her pastor, and so she began to tell really hurtful, lying things about him. And then she got convicted in the process that what she was doing is really wrong. She went into the pastor and said, I am sorry, I have sinned against you, and here's what I've done. And the pastor said, you know what, I forgive you. He says, but I want to show you a lesson how this works. So he took her outside. There was a little hill outside. This was in the Midwest, by the way, so it's not here. And it was on a little hill behind the church. So he took her back. There was kind of a windy day, and he had a pillow with him. And when he got to the hill, he took a knife, slit the pillow open, handed it to Lady, and said, shake this out. And well, of course, it was a down pillow. So she shook it out, and the feathers just went everywhere, right? All over town, through the fields, all that. And he says, now, what I want you to do is go and collect all the feathers and put them back in the pillow. And she said, what? that's impossible. He says, yes, that's what slander and lying does. It's impossible to pull back everything you've done. And, uh, and like this, with this plant, like dock plants, those seeds go everywhere. And so it's hard, uh, it's hard to contain. Number three, if that wasn't miserable enough, dock plants send out secondary shoots. So from the primary parent plant, it sends out little feeder shoots and then sends new ones down. So if you dig up the parent plant, um, you don't get rid of it because the little sibling plants all flourish. And so it's really a good illustration of how bitterness begets more bitterness, begets more bitterness. That's why the Bible's warning us about it. Get, take care of it in the early stages because it's really hard to get rid of. And then number four, here's the most miserable one of the whole bunch. Okay? If you dig up a dock plant and you throw it on your compost pile, it'll shrivel up, turn brown, and die. But just throw it back on the grass or throw some water on it and it comes back alive right? And isn't that like how bitterness works in our heart? We've taken care of it. It's dead. It's gone. It's back, right? And it's amazing how it can keep coming back around. Have you ever been stunned with how quickly bitterness can come back into your life once you thought you had gotten rid of it? I dealt with that. Oh my goodness. What in the You know, just tough. I think you get the point that dock plants are kind of hard to get rid of, okay? Why does bitterness, and this is a great question, why does bitterness not get better, or why does bitterness come back so quickly? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And there's a really good reason for it. The reason that it comes back so quickly uh, is because our sin nature never gets any better. You have two natures that are at war within you. The Galatians 5 says the flesh wars against the spirit. The spirit wars against the flesh. They are in conflict with each other or contrary to each other like oil and water so that you cannot do what you want. 
In other words, there's a battle going on. That battle's inside of us. And if we yield to the flesh in some area, it gives the nourishment or the food for these kind of things to spring back up. And so that's why even at my age, you have to keep battling this stuff because it has a tendency to regain life. That's why in Ephesians 4, we're commanded to get rid of all bitterness. When it says all, what does it mean there? Like 66.2%? No, it means all, right? So big, little, we've got to deal with it because it has very serious consequences. And the illustration here, like the dock plant, is that once it gets a foothold, uh, it's very hard to get rid of. Uh, now, this can be theoretical. This can be, um, yeah, yeah, that's good and glad we'll go to church. Bless you, Jesus. Okay. Uh, let me make it practical. I, I've battled this battle, right? I wish I could say I hadn't, but I have. At different key points in my life, and I know firsthand how tenacious it can be, and I know how it can cloud a person's spirit where you just can't see anything else but this thing that happened to you. Uh, I've seen it consume people. I've seen it consume marriages. I've seen it consume churches. Uh, let me just illustrate with my own life. So before I was here, I was at North Shore Baptist Church, now North Shore Community Church, the mother church of our church. I'd been there for 25 years. And uh, my, my exit from there wasn't glamorous. All right, I came out of that. I was wounded, angry, and I might add just a teensy-weensy bit bitter, all right? Yeah, you can see the pun in that, okay? Now, I'm not going to dress it up or make it pretty for you because it wasn't, but it wasn't just people. It wasn't just people. One of my biggest problems was God himself. I had an expectation of how some things were going to go, and they did not go the way I thought they should go. Uh, I prayed a lot during that season, and I hoped God would answer my requests. I felt that I had his absolute best interest in mind when I was doing this. I was not being rebellious. I was not being angry. I'm not, I felt like this was kingdom stuff. I knew what God wanted to do. I was praying accordingly, and I thought he would answer accordingly. Not only didn't he answer, well, caveat here, okay, the way I wanted him to. You ever done that? Anybody with me, right? Okay. Not only didn't he answer, uh, at least how I felt at the time, but he actually compounded the problem. He made it worse. Right? I shared my story of how I was in the back of the parking lot, and if you haven't heard that before, I was in the back of the parking lot in my pickup truck praying uh, over all this and uh, the situation, and, and desperately praying, and, and God spoke to me. I heard him very clearly. And he said, you know, Steve, for all this to work out, you're going to have to put Isaac on the altar. I said, awesome. Booyah. Great. I got it. I know that story. That's fantastic faith lesson. I can do this. Be glad to do that, God. Happy to cooperate. And then he came back and he said, by the way, you don't get Isaac back. And I went, well, I won't tell you what I really said. But <laughs> by the way, I'm not sure you should say what I said when I said this, but I quickly countered, that's the best you're going to get. You can't do that because that's not how the story goes, right? That's your story. I know the story. I read the word. You can't change it. That's how it goes. Nice try. Let's go back over this again. That's not how it went, okay? You know what his comeback to me was? Yeah, and you're not Abraham. Okay, now that's really funny now. I even enjoy it. It wasn't funny when he said it. 
Okay? I was devastated. I was sitting in the truck just blown up and uh, actually at loss. I didn't know what to do. And uh, as I mentioned, it, it, you know, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny back then. How could God do that to me? Was basically my attitude. And, and I said, that's my reward for serving you for 25 years? You get to be cute with me? I was beyond stunned. Like I had the picture, God, you can't do that. You're my dad, right? Like, come on. Now, fortunately, in this story, you can tell that I was more than tweaked and not seeing things very well. All right? I was being Steve and not a very good Steve at that at all. Fortunately, God's kindness prevailed and he did lead, but not in the way I wanted. But he clearly led. He led me and my family here to Northview. And it's been beyond good. And I, I know I've been good for you as a pastor, but you need to know that you've been really, really good for me and my family as well. It was kind of a match made in heaven sort of thing. Really worked out good. And there was a critical defining point in this whole process. I, had a, I still have it. He's a good friend, Sam Jelovich. Many of you know him. And Sam came to me and he said, you know, Steve, he sat down one afternoon with me and I was really stewing, trying to just figure this whole thing out and couldn't get it figured out. And he said to me, hey, Steve, you know what? Trust me, in three years, you're going to look back and you're going to see what God was really doing. And you're going to be thankful that he brought you to Norfolk and didn't keep you at North Shore. And I thought, man, there is no way. And to understand part of my story, you'd have to understand that I, I gave up my family uh, for North Shore. I left Wisconsin for North Shore. They were my, it wasn't a job. It was my tribe, my posse, my family. Uh, it was that. And so to believe that God actually had something better was really hard to believe. And Sam just kept talking to me. And, uh, and you know what? It's totally true. <laughs> Three years later, I looked back and went, I'll be darned. He was right. God really knew what he was doing. God totally had the big picture in mind. He was for North Shore. And he was for Northview. And he was for me. He was for me and my family. And I went, ha, I shouldn't be surprised but I was. And something beautiful broke inside of me. Okay? Something I think you've picked up on and has really helped me with being a pastor these last 17 years here. He, basically what I said is, you know what, Lord? If you'll wash all my crap and sin, add in bitterness here. Right? If you'll wash all that and let it wash under the bridge and not hold it against me, then you know what, God? I forgive all that stuff and I let that wash and let that wash under the bridge too. Let it go. And God did something really beautiful in my life that has been part of how I've shepherded for the last 15 years here. And it's been something that uh, I've realized really couldn't have happened without him taking me through that process. So what are, what are we dealing with here when I tell a story like that? By the way, I, I feel it's better for me to tell my story than tell your story, right? But you got yours too. Um, we're dealing with a subject that's hard to get our heads around. Uh, James talked about it last night with the high school kids and it was awesome. But what we're dealing with here is the sovereignty of God. All right? When we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about his rule and reign. Talking about the sovereignty of God, what is that? Well, here's the definition from Wikipedia and actually it's really good. It says the sovereignty of God is the Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority 
and all things are under his control. God is the sovereign Lord of all by, in, by an incontestable right as creator, owner and possessor of heaven and earth. Sovereignty is an attribute of God based on the premise that God is the creator of heaven and earth, has absolute right and full authority to do or allow whatever he desires. And we go, amen, right? I want you to catch something in there, though. Look at the last phrase. It says this, he has the absolute right and full authority to do, or what's the next phrase? Or allow whatever he desires. We're okay with the do part. It's the allow part that messes us up. Has God allowed some things in your life that you wouldn't have voted for? Absolutely. Just like in mine. All right, if we're looking at God's sovereignty, it's a natural consequence of these three things. First is his omniscience, which means he is all-knowing. Second is his omnipotence, which means he is all-powerful. The very universe, the fabric of the atoms, the stuff we know as material and the chairs you're sitting on, everything right now is held together. Colossians tells us by the power of his word. And then his omnipresence, he's all-present. God, where did you go? And his answer has got to be nowhere. I've been here for a long time. What's your problem? He is in our present circumstances right now in the United States, in COVID, with all that stuff, and your face mask. Okay? He is all present. I mentioned that James did a great job. He just blew the universe up and how big the universe was last night. And then you realize, wow, the universe can't contain him. What in the world are we dealing with? The idea here is that God is the sole ruler and owner of all that is made in both the heavens and the earth. Let's just take a brief peek uh, at the scriptures. Here's just some teasers for you. Okay? Sovereignty of God in the scripture. Psalm 51 says this, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Psalm 66, 7, Who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Then it says Selah. Selah means think about that. Pause. Ponder that for a little bit. Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, a person could say, okay, those are good. But you know what? That's all from Psalms. That's all from David, and he was kind of quirky, eclectic, artisty kind of guy, so he just wrote extravagant descriptions in, and that's only in the Psalms. Let's look at some other places outside of the Psalms. Isaiah, Isaiah 40, great chapter, by the way. If you've not read that in a while, just go, th if you want to go through the sovereignty of God, read Isaiah 40. But verses 15 and 17 say this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. Anybody hear chariots of fire going here, right, theme song? All right, and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In other words, in comparison to the size of God, the nations as we know, which is big stuff, is nothing. Look at 1 Timothy 6.15. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
That was Paul's description of them. And in Revelation, it's written, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and we might add, and is to come. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Right now, that's just to set our thinking this morning because some of us need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Okay? He does have it mapped out. He does know. And what I believe this really all kind of boils down to is not do I believe in him, although that's very important. Right? That's critical. But I think the bigger question is do I trust him? It's one thing to say I believe. It's another thing to say I trust. Just think through marriage, right? Makes a big, makes sense to you. Do I trust his rule and authority? And it means something else as well. It means that we have to trust him in the good and in the bad. That God is as much in the bad as he is in the good. We have kind of a bipolar response. God is with me when things are good and he's abandoned me when, I'm, when things are bad. God, you've blessed me. Look at this. This is awesome. But God, where did you go? How could you leave me here like this? What happened? Okay? And the truth is we have to learn to say, God, you are with me in the good. You are with me in the bad. Thank you for being here, even though I don't like this and I would have never picked this. There's something about you that I need to learn, and I need to learn it in this circumstance, and you're wise enough to know that. I haven't always been that good at that, can you tell? We've already run into this when we were doing the flipping series. Remember when we did that series, and, and some of you have been part of that. If you're not, again, you can go to our website, download the messages, but in Philippians chapter 4, there was a message on contentment that, that spoke to us as a congregation. And um, let's look at that again. In Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul is talking. He's thanking the Philippian church for the gift that they gave him. And he, and he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says that he's learned the secret, right? We all want to know what the secret is, right? Um, of being content in any situation. Look what he lists here. On the positive side, he lists abounding, plenty, abundance. Uh, who would sign up for that? Me, 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 right? But he says the other side of the equation is brought low, hunger, and need. What he's saying is that he could be content when things were good, but he could also be content when they were not good. He had learned the secret of being content in God, and that was it didn't depend on your circumstances. It depended on your trusting him. And that he could be content in either one. Most of us, like I said, are okay when things are good. It's when things get hard that we have the problem. But true contentment is being able to be at peace regardless of your circumstances. One definition of contentment is being at peace in your circumstances even though it looks like God is not around. 
Isn't that great? How many times has it looked in your life like God's not around? Job set this in motion for us when he declares this. It says, after, of course, you, you know the catastrophe. If you don't know the Bible story, Job goes through terrible stuff. He, he, he gets raided. Uh, his animals are all stolen. Uh, his stuff gets burned up with fire. Uh, wind comes, house falls. All his kids, 10 children are killed. And it says, after that happened, it says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. Ah, I feel good. And fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says this, and this is one of the greatest commentaries in all of scripture. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Have you ever charged God with wrong? You ever told him he blew it? Ever tell God he's an idiot? Ever tell God, if that's your idea of fun, if that's your idea, if you're trying to be cute, I'm out. And basically, as a culture, we voted out. As a culture, in the United States culture, we said, you know what? Done with you. Past that. Gone. Not going to put up with that anymore. But Job, this is a true heart of faith. Faith in God accepts the good from him and the bad. In all my circumstances, blessed be the name of the Lord. That has always been, if you think about it, the difference with Christians and pagans. Anybody can swear and get angry and retaliate when they're upset. It's the Christians who sing in prison at the middle of the night that make the difference. And I don't use my circumstances to impute evil to God. And faith is powerful. Remember, we were talking last week, Jesus actually said this to the disciples. Uh, the apostles said to the Lord, when it came to this forgiveness issue, they said, uh, increase our faith, right? Teach us how to pray. And Jesus said to them, if you have faith like a mustard seed, like a grain of mustard, you could say to this mulberry tree, again, it's a sycamine tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, faith has the ability to take things that are rooted in us, like bitterness, and to be cast into the sea if we cooperate with the Lord in faith. It's a powerful antidote for festering resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness. Remember, this increase of our faith statement is tied to the issue of unforgiveness. Look at what Jesus was saying to them in verses 3 and 4, the verses right before this one. It says this, Pay attention to yourselves. In other words, watch your heart. Watch the condition of your heart. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and many of you are sitting there going, well, how, who would do that seven times a day? Any of you married? <laughs> Aha, bingo. <laughs> right? If he sins against you seven times a day, I repent, you must forgive him. If that's not enough, do you remember this other parable? This is, uh, it's said, it's, the setting is the same idea as the last one. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, uh, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Poor Andrew. Seven times? Jesus responds, 70 times seven. What? Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, million bucks. Just, just make that, all right? 
owed him a million bucks. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Now that should mean that that man is healed, he's forgiven, he's released, so there should be no more bitterness in him, right? But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred bucks. Denari, same thing, day's wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant did the same routine, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now last week, remember I mentioned I had gained an insight into bitterness and it actually comes from this parable. Here's the insight I gained, okay? What is it? As you read the parable about the king and the first servant, we go, good, justice, slam damn that guy, right? He deserves it. What a pig. How could he be so uncalloused and how could he be... My goodness, throw that guy in jail. He deserves it. That's how we'd react. But the thought occurred to me, hey, what about the second guy? The second guy, yeah. The, remember the second guy who owed the 100 bucks? says he got thrown in jail. And it never tells us in the parable if he got out of jail or not. And if not, don't you think he would have had a valid case for being bitter against the first guy? Because he probably knew what the master had done to the first guy. He had probably maybe even been there or heard the story repeated. And he saw what had happened and knew he was forgiven. So he thought, well, just as the master forgave that guy, if I come the same way, this guy will forgive me as well. And so he was hoping that his debts, his sins, would be forgiven also. After all, it says when this guy came, what did it say? The first guy, what? Seized him. In other words, threw him up against the wall. It says he was choking him. Here's the insight. Both had to extend forgiveness if they were going to be accepted by the king, not just the first guy. Remember the prodigal son? We all get the prodigal, right? He had a problem. Did the older brother have a problem too? Same thing here. First guy has a problem, but so does the second guy thrown in jail. And both of them are prone to being struggling with bitterness. And the guy, the second guy has to forgive the same way the first guy should have forgiven. Or he's going to be stuck in the same confines and jail that the first guy's going to be in. And the second guy probably had to deal with bitterness more than the first guy did. Because he had watched what had happened and then got treated terribly. And that would have felt really unjust. 
Jesus says that forgiveness has to be from the heart. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These verses, do you know what these verses follow? What precedes these verses? It's the Lord's Prayer. In other words, Jesus teaches them how to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us, old translation, forgive us our what? Trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Modern translation, forgive us our debts as in this parable, right? As we have debts with others. And then these verses follow. And in times of like COVID-19, in times when the margin's been stripped, which that's what's happened over the last year, we tend to get edgy, we tend to get nervous, we tend to get tight, and we tend to become very unforgiving. If you don't believe me, just read Facebook, okay? Or watch the news, okay? We are spitting venom and rhetoric uh, like crazy. So we find that one of the greatest antidotes for bitterness is forgiveness. But, 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 if I forgive them, they'll get away with it. And I will never let that happen. Bang, the wasp just stung. You feel it? Boom, we're caught. Bitterness now has a toehold, and like the dock plant, it's going to quickly sink in its roots. Uh, My friend Tim Maple says that hanging on to bitterness... To punish the other person is like drinking poison, hoping they will die. My friend Peggy Baker, who's sitting right over there this morning, is so glad I'm quoting her, says that grabbing uh, bitterness is like grabbing the wrong edge of the sword. I'm bleeding badly, but I'm not going to let go. So how do we counteract bitterness and its kissing cousins, resentment and unforgiveness? Let's do a quick walkthrough. Number one. We cannot fight bitterness with bitterness. If you fight bitterness with bitterness, all it will beget is more bitterness. Okay? We call them feuds. We call them factions. We call them dissensions. We call them church splits. We call them, just name it. it, it, it bitterness just uh, creates more bitterness. Romans 12, we looked at it last week. We don't have time this morning. You can go there, it says, but it says, leave that stuff in the hands of God where it belongs. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That ought to make all of us duck. Right there. Incoming. And it's coming for me. That means you better get on your knees and beg for mercy. Number two, we must exercise our faith. Without faith, is it impossible to please please God? Because he who comes to God must believe, number one, that he is, and number two, that that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We must ask God for the ability and willingness to let him cast the bitterness in our heart, out of our heart, into the sea. God, take this out of me, get rid of it, and don't let me play with it again. Then Satan will come right back. Yeah, but did you? Yeah, but you know them. Usually it comes in, in waves of three. Any of you ever notice that? You've got to get it kicked out completely. You've got to exercise faith in it. And then number three, we must forgive our brother or sister 
from the heart. Remember uh, Jim Wilson in the booklet that we were talking about? You have to pray until you can't remember the details anymore. One of the things we do as married couples is we not only take the offense that happened, but we take the offense and we throw in the whole kitchen sink for the last 30 years of our marriage. And you did this, 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 and do you see what? And then you did that, right? We do it. We're nasty. That's not Christian. That's not Holy Spirit. That's just sinful flesh retaliating and taking vengeance for itself. Call it what it is. And the Bible says get rid of it. What if you still remember? It's a good question. You must still forgive. Uh, many of you would recognize the name Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom and her family were Dutch family in the Netherlands, hid uh, Jewish families from the Nazis. Eventually they got found out, ratted out by their own people and were thrown in a concentration camp. Uh, Betsy and Corey, uh, Betsy was Corey's sister, were in Ravensbrück. Uh, and Betsy actually ended up dying uh, days before the liberators came to the camp. And Corey was standing and she was talking in a meeting uh, in Europe and was giving a message, this, this message actually, and she was talking about the will willingness uh, from post-war to forgive the enemy. And while she was talking, at the end of the talk, a man came up to the front and she instantly recognized who it was. It was one of the guards at the camp at Ravensbrook. And she said, every thought in the universe went through my mind of that man and what the feelings I felt towards that man. And the man came up to her and says, Sister Corey, those are wonderful words you said. He says, I have done many terrible things in my life and since the war I have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And I'm standing before you today asking if you could forgive me. And she says, it felt like time froze. She said, I felt like a wood pig. I couldn't move. All the thoughts of Betsy, my sister, dying in camp and everything. And I thought, is it possible to forgive this man. She said, I, I remembered something that often uh, belief sets in motion action. But she said, I also remember that sometimes if you act, you'll end up doing what you're supposed to do the right way. She said, the only thing I could think of was to extend my hand to the man. She said, I sat there what seemed like an eternity. And she said, I felt froze like ice. But she said, I slowly extended my hand and she said, I heard the words come from me. Yes, brother, I can forgive you. And the man clasped her hand. And she said from that moment on, she felt just the wave of the Holy Spirit come over her and a release that uh, went on to inspire her speaking uh, after the war for years. And her story's famous. That is what, it's just a fantastic illustration. But a greater illustration than Corey ten Boom is Jesus himself. We're talking about why we should let it go. If you think about it, if anyone had the right to be bitter over the way that they had been treated, wouldn't it be Jesus? And yet God's not bitter. He has extended forgiveness to us. We who have treated him badly. As a country, we're behaving very badly right now. We have dropped to the lowest common denominator. We are like, like a bunch of spoiled four-year-olds throwing temper tantrums in the kindergarten. 
He has extended forgiveness to us. Therefore, let's use his presence in us, just like Corey did, to extend forgiveness to those we need to. And so my question this morning is, who do you need to forgive? And maybe, again, could we add that word? Who do you need to forgive? Again. Who do, what needs to get rooted out this morning? Let's offload the baggage and go into Easter with clean and forgiven hearts. We are ending, the next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And the theme of the three, the three services is, is he worthy? You know, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, we welcome you back. And uh, then Easter Sunday. Let's go in with clean hearts and forgiven hearts, both towards ourselves and towards others. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, solid, solid word from your word. All of us know what it's like to be on the wrong side of this. All of us know what it's like to be on the right side. And Lord, we know the incredible forgiveness you've extended us, and yet it is insanely weird how we can't extend that to other people. And really because it's a failure to comprehend what you actually did. Would you forgive us again? We ask for mercy. May we find ourselves opening up and extending forgiveness to many people in our circle of influences here, Lord. We are scattered throughout the Mill Creek area. And if this were to catch a wave, Lord, this would take place throughout the Mill Creek area this week in our jobs, in our homes, in the stores, in the places of our work. May we extend forgiveness in heart and spirit and ask for your leading. And we give that to you in your name. Amen.